0: been measured across the last uh, uh, 40 years or so, and with each increase in uh, unemployment rate, you can see the different kinds of workers have different kinds of levels of unemployment associated with them. And um, at the last uh, uh, recession, which, which, which started pretty well in the uh, late 2008, uh, we can see that it really wasn't the service workers, the poorer workers, that were, uh, had the, the, the greatest increase in unemployment it was the blue collar workers the people who you know your plumbers electricians that charge a lot of money to, to 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 fix your house because they are a new class to themselves they may not have such high level of education but they can command a good market price for what they do so the class system in that sense is 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 is, is changing inequality in its relationship to obesity the most important You know, there are a number of ways in which this happens, but notably via the body and so-called body projects. Um, If I mention somebody like Madonna, for example, she was a body project. Inasmuch as she becomes an icon um, and, and her life is devoted largely to maintaining a certain kind of image. And, of course, women ascribe to those kinds of iconic iconic bodies and body projects. And they come to signify a certain kind of status, which I'll talk about a little bit more. So this is the structure of the talk. <coughs> I talk about it, talk about inequality, types of inequality, then types about insecurity, and and, and uh, devote that uh, uh, the, the, the remainder of the talk to, uh, um, uh, to some work that we've done on insecurity. So, first of all, obesity overall is greater in more economically unequal countries. This is Kate Pickett et al. Uh, with Wilkinson, um, big people who've talked about inequality and, and, and health, and demonstrating the United States, has, uh, where, which has the highest levels of inequality, economic inequality, This is a ratio of top 20% to bottom 20% of income, um, with the highest levels of, of female obesity in this case. Japan, with low levels of economic inequality, and, and, and low levels of obesity. And interestingly, here we have countries like Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, <laughs> all of whom have low levels of, of, uh, of uh, uh, e- um, uh, economic inequality and low levels of, uh, of obesity. I should say that this has led to a quest. Um, that has uh, led to associations with colleagues in Denmark and Sweden, which which has proved to be very profitable, because they are really interested in these issues in Scandinavia, because in Parliament there are debates about the cost of the welfare state, and we have been called upon to, to talk about the obesity costs of not having a welfare state, because there's a, 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 an obesity bonus, if we can call it that, in relation to not having welfare provision. Anyway, Michael Marmot has, uh, has, has, has written extensively about inequality, and inequality is, is so important that he suggested that reducing inequality might help to reduce um, obesity um, by reducing, reducing insecurity. McLaren has, uh, has done a meta-analysis of, of types of inequality. Um, these are numbers, uh, percentages of numbers of studies, 333 studies in all, that have looked at different kinds of um, eco- uh, 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 inequality. Um, socioeconomic status, we tend to bundle together as one thing. We say it's socioeconomic status. However, it's a complex and entangled thing because how status is constructed isn't just by your income, isn't just by your education. It's also by the music you listen to, uh, the networks of friends that you have, and the influence that you have. An awful lot of status in Oxford, for example, comes less from money, although that's important, than from having the right connections. And Oxford is a network society where you can move something by knowing who to talk to or talk, knowing who to talk to to tell you who you should talk to. And it's, it's a, anybody who's involved in college and college politics will know this uh, uh, quite, quite, quite deeply. Anyway, this just shows that in countries with a high human development index, well-off countries, industrialized countries, um, that there are negative associations between, uh, between obesity. That is, generally, the poorer classes are the people um, that have high levels of obesity. So So this is um, with respect to education, um, with respect to uh, occupation, type of occupation, that is the status in occupation and not the income that comes from occupation. Um, The employment figure here is employed versus unemployed. The unemployed have higher levels of obesity and also with respect to income. Now, this is women. We see when we look at men, however, the relationships are less strong. So the inequality and obesity relationships are far, far stronger among women, especially when you, you think in terms, of, uh, in terms of occupation. There are still glass ceilings. Bodies are important, and they're more important for women than they are for men. Um, <clears throat> there's all kinds of perceptions that go with having the wrong kind of body, for example, and I'll come on to that presently. In developing countries, this is countries, with medium and low human development index, that means the, uh, uh, some of the emerging nations and also you know the poorer countries, so it would include countries like India and China, for example, in this they 're not quite there. The relationships are, are, are not quite the same um, that in fact um, there are positive associations between education and obesity as well as negative ones. And uh, positive associations between, uh, between uh, uh, income and, uh, and, uh, and, and obesity. Now, if we went back to the UK 100 years ago, we went back across most of Europe over 100 years ago, it was a positive thing to carry weight because it was difficult to get. The change that's happened in the last 60 years or so is that we have a turn, that the the environment in which we live in, in in the industrialized world has very much changed so that food is cheap, food is plentiful, High-energy-dense food is, 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 is very plentiful, as you know. Sugar and fat combinations are, uh, are, are easy to over-consume, and it creates all the problems that you know much better about than, 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 than I do. Then the social... Inversion, the class inversion, the inequality change that happens is it becomes a a, a disorder of poorer people. And there are places across the world where this inversion is happening now. We've done some work in Poland showing that at the transition from, from communism to free market system, that inversion has happened very quickly so so those those things are very interesting and very important. okay McLaren said that obesity uh, this is, uh, okay this is men, and, and uh, similar things apply to men as as, uh, as to women that obesity is a social phenomenon, and these measures are proxies for what we really want to know. How does society structure itself, and how does this lead to obesity? Um, these are just very simple, crude proxies, actually, the realities of it are how do people come to overconsume consume relative to expenditure on a daily basis, even when they know all the information about not putting weight on, because it still happens when everybody has the information. Education is not, not simply the, the right answer. Uh, the only answer... Obesity also varies geographically, and sometimes it's important to know about geographical regions and, and, and obesity. In Denmark, there is the so-called rotten banana beneath Copenhagen, where everything is, 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 is rotten, high levels of obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and so on. And so much of the debate in Denmark is about, about fixing the rotten banana, for example. Um, in the UK, the discussion is, is usually couched in terms of the north-south divide between the north of England and the south of England. We look at obesity. And this is data from analysis from uh, Pete Scarborough here here in, in Oxford, and Steve Allender, who's now moved to Australia, um, shows that the north-south divide is, to some extent, true at certain times. In men, uh, when we look in the uh, 19, late 1990s, there's a clear north-south divide. When we look in women, in the, uh, the mid-to-late uh, mid 1990s, there's a north-south divide. It just starts to change. Um, location, how important is it? If one talks about obesity in terms of a north-south divide, the reality is a little bit different. Um, that social class is still with us, despite calls for a classless society. There's not really a north-south divide, despite the political discourse, despite the media discourse. Actually, there's much more of an occupational structuring of obesity. When we look at the odds ratios for obesity, um, um, less so for men, but more so for women. Women. Social Social class, social class, social class, social class pops out as the most important structuring factor across all of these things. Now, across the period of the Blair administration, they were trying to promote a classless society. That means they wanted to try and... Pull everybody towards a middle class set of values. And much of health education is about exactly that, and much of much of schooling in this country is exactly about uh, uh, about that. The ideas of social inclusion were all about that. But despite all of these, the class differences persist, and they're not just they're not matters of of uh, of, uh, of ignorance. Social classes become uh, structuring forces in their own right. People who talk to each other, network with each other of a particular uh, uh, class and, and status create particular ideas about how things should be. You can think about the Jamie Oliver campaign, where they were trying to introduce you know, good, wholesome, nutritious food to children in school lunches, and then there were parents who were shoving chips and hamburgers through the railings, and the media caught on to that, and so on. But as far as the parents were concerned, they said, why should a middle-class, wealthy individual have you know control over 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 how we feed our children so this was a an, an act of resistance now in anthropology it's as interesting to know about acts of resistance and not treat them as deviant behavior because nothing is illogical there's always a logic it may not be your logic but it'll be a different kind of logic so so there are people who study that place is important where you live is important because let's take for example adam pronofsky's work in, in king county in uh, uh, in seattle where he's shown that, um, that there are neighbourhood <coughs> effects. place and socioeconomic <coughs> position map onto each other. With respect to house prices, he's shown that obesity rates are greater, um, the cheaper the houses that are in a particular district, and the inverse of the colours. So according to this zip code, where home value is highest, the obesity rates are lowest. And this he calls the Walmart Corridor in Seattle, uh, where the obesity rates are highest, property values are lowest, but it also associates with a lot of other things about the so-called obesogenic environment. Poverty also <laughs> clusters in the Walmart corridor. Um, the provision of services is poorer. Fast food outlets are greater. Good grocery stores are concentrated more in places like this. This is where Bill Gates lives. Um <laughs> Actually, one of the things about socioeconomic status is that you never get information on the richest of the rich. They don't comply with surveys, so you never get a true representation of of, of the true inequalities. You can only expect that the inequalities that you find are underestimates of the real picture. Okay, but what's really interesting is when we look at um, um, how these linkages happen and how they interact, and the bit in the middle... The bit that shapes the behaviours, that shape the factors that structure obesity inequality. So now I'm going to move to these pieces in the middle. This is a SoCal 1991, first put out a great paper about socioeconomic status and obesity, showing that socioeconomic status can lead to obesity. Obesity can lead to, to, to uh, is related to socioeconomic status, to the point where putting weight on stops you being socially mobile, for example. And this is another issue in a lot of countries. Social mobility in this country has declined in recent years. It used to be very strong, I suppose, in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, that you, know, that you could march out of your social class if you had the education and were able to, to you know, show, show your value. Um, but there are other things in the middle, the behaviours that create discrimination, that create stigma, uh, that influence the likelihood of getting a decent education, of getting a decent income, getting a decent job, all of these things that are relate to socioeconomic status. Um, this is an article that was put out just after the Foresight Report came out. Who's heard of the Foresight Report? If, I, maybe if you just put your hands up, okay. I was, I was on the panel uh, in, the, in the domain called Societal influences. So myself and with a bunch of social psychologists, the only anthropologist on the whole team. Um, what, they, what, what, what they said was that the societal message is that it's denying individual responsibility. Actually, individual responsibility is an issue. How much self-control does it need to be able to resist all the market structures that create... Uh, the availability of the wrong kinds of foods in the wrong kinds of places and so on. It says at the end, one version did not appear in the Foresight Project report was, was, was stigma, and that maybe we should stigmatize more. Maybe we should stigmatize overweight people um, in, in, in everyday life, and then it should shame them. Now, it's an appalling article, but it's a good lead into thinking about this article. Um, stigma focuses. Individual blame in obesity, not the general population. The Foresight Report was trying to shift the debate away from individual responsibility to societal structures. So are there ways in which societal structures could be changed to make things easier to resist things like like obesity and the diseases that that go with them? The other thing about stigma is that it's pervasive, it's moralising and it's powerful. Everybody, I mean, okay, I'm going to confess, I was a fat kid when I was 10 years old. And, and, and you know what? I can still remember um, what happens in the schoolyard. What happened in the schoolyard back then still happens in the schoolyard now. And you can say, well, you know, maybe this should then create the mindset for, for resisting obesity. But actually, sometimes it's quite the opposite. It does the opposite. It's tied to the body as Identity. Now, this is there's a, you know, a, a, a powerful force. Slim bodies are, are valued much more, much more greater than thin ones. Except you have role models like Beth Ditto, for example, who you know, go in the opposite direction in, towards fat pride and so on. There is another set of resistances around, around defending large body size, um, uh, which, I'm, again, I'm not going to talk about today. Where do you find stigma and obesity? There's a lot of evidence, but what's the strong evidence? Poole and uh, Hoyer in in Yale have done a lovely paper showing that one of the strongest places where obesity uh, is stigmatized is in employment. Weight-based disparities in employment. That is, an overweight person is less likely to get promoted. Um, Obese employees experience wage penalties. They're less likely to, to, to get promoted to higher grades within their job. Obese applicants uh, uh, for jobs face weight weight bias and job evaluations. All of this has been shown as strong evidence. There's lots and lots of data that shows equivocal evidence, but these are just the few that, that show strong evidence. In healthcare, healthcare professionals endorse stereotypes and negative attitudes about obese patients. And there's a codified discrimination that's been demonstrated both in the UK and in the United States. This is not conscious. This is just... People's attitudes towards somebody who is obese who comes into who comes into the clinic, and then there's the media. The media characteristically uh, depict overweight and obese character, uh, character, uh, uh, characters as being weak-willed, as being um, inept or uh, irresponsible. At best, they'll be comedy characters. So, so there's a whole range in which stigma is institutionalised, shall we say, uh, uh, across across society. Um, Okay, I've talked about socioeconomic status and how it doesn't really capture everything. I just want to talk briefly about other forms of capital. And, and, uh, you know, if we think about education as our capital, I have students who say, I'm poor, I have got no money. I say, no, you are not poor. You have intellectual capital. And you will be able to use that intellectual capital in some way in the future. Right now... You may feel you're poor, but look—you're in Oxford. You know lots of people. Some of these people are going to, going to become very rich. Some of these people are going to become very influential. If you keep those friends, you will have capital from knowing those people. You will have capital from being able to get the right kind of job at some stage, some stage into the into into the future. Um, so, other forms of of capital, upstairs and downstairs. Now. Um, this is Downton Abbey, and of course, we all eat like those people up there every night, don't we? Um, so, I'd like to introduce a little bit of sociology. Bourdieu, Pierre Bourdieu, um, um, put forward the theory of practice way back in the 1980s. Bourdieu was the person who put forward the idea of social capital, for example, that now is widespread in public health, for example. Um, he linked different kinds of capital towards an overarching symbolic capital. That is, um, your director. Would you stand up for a minute? Yeah, just stand up, stand up, stand up. Proudly, proudly. He's the embodiment of symbolic capital. He's got a decent income, he's at the top of his career, um, he's probably got a lovely family, um, and and uh, he's got a, a great intellect. You could probably talk about music or art or any subject you want to, probably. Yeah. <laughs> so, the capital he carries is not just his income. It is all of those things. He carries it all together around with him every day. Yes? And, and similarly, all of you carry different kinds of capital. And these are the categories which power relations in society are negotiated. Sometimes it can be just crudely money. But sometimes it's intellect, being able to argue correctly. Sometimes it's connections, being able to talk to the right person. All of those things happen whether you're at the top or at the bottom, and they happen in different ways to different extents. You could be a poor person, but you could have a lot of social capital because you can mobilize other people around childcare, for example, if you need it, because you can help each other. Those kinds of things are very important. (coughs) The notion of cultural value also occurs in things like preferences in food, body size and shape, and it does relate to obesity. Obesity as one form of resistance has been seen in the United States, where there are culturally variant ideas of appropriate and preferable body image. So, you know, this is one family that's slimmed down. But African-American, this is the kind of thing that occurs in the psychology literature, for example. African-American women prefer larger body sizes, similar groups of Euro-American women. Overweight and obese African-American women see themselves as healthier, more attractive, and more attractive to the opposite sex, and and so on. And you think, well, is that deviant behaviour? I would argue no. <clears throat> um, it's there. It's not healthy, but it's not deviant behaviour. It's only deviant if you put it in the context of in the context of health. It's not deviant because it can be viewed as embodied capital. If this is seen as a positive thing, I've worked in the Cook Islands in the Pacific. It has the second highest rate of uh, uh, prevalence of, of obesity in the planet and it also, at the moment, has the the second highest rate of increase in obesity rate on the planet. So I've got a paper with a student of mine who's just come back from Nauru, which is the place which has the highest rates, and we're looking at historical, colonial, and and, and cultural factors that may be fueling this obesity increase in in, in those two particular places. But there, being overweight is capital. I'm carrying my body. It's, uh, you know, I have wealth and prestige because I'm a big person. I have social status and I have bodily status. Um, so embodied capital is, 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 is one thing, and that varies. Um, objectified capital is another. Now, you know, we think about food as carrying distinction. That is, you, certain foods carry more status than others. But when we look at fast food, then we can see this as a subversion of objectified capital in some places. Branding and advertising. This logo is worth a lot of money, huge amounts of money as is every other one of these logos. Anybody that tries to subvert these logos is potentially at risk of being sued by those corporations because these are the real value of what they produce. Coca-Cola is fizzy water with sugar and a few other little things. So is Pepsi. KFC is a little bit of chicken, a lot of fat, and, uh, and some carbohydrate. Yeah? Um, but really, what people are buying is this smiley face. They're buying this logo, and they're buying those arches. They're buying status. So through branding and advertising, they give cultural value to foods <laughs> that are cheap to produce. The thing is, how to subvert these? Um, I, I think this is a major public health issue in working out how to subvert these legally. There are lots of illegal subversions, and mostly... I'm working with artists as well, and there are artists who are subverting these images. Um, uh, oh yes, Coca-Cola. There's, there's a logo out there which is which is which is diabetic Coke, for example, <laughs> and it, and it's like that. You just read, oh, hot, diabetic Coke. Okay, it's a perfect subversion. And and that you know, I, I could send you some of those images if, if 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 it's interesting, because there's a whole visual political economy of these images. Who controls them? How they're distributed? How they're, how they're used, and then how people can take local action in actually subverting those images. It's actually very important and very powerful, and something that is, is, is very little engaged in uh, outside, of, outside of anthropology. So very briefly, just to make things complicated, we know about economic capital, social capital. <coughs> Adding Bourdieu's construct of cultural capital, we have these other capitals, overall symbolic capital. This is what is captured at the moment These are the things that could be captured in these measures of of, of socioeconomic status. I'm going to turn to insecurity now and uh, talk about some of the work that we've done (coughs) in relation to this. And I'm going to introduce this by uh, just showing this chart of Gini coefficients, which is the ratio of the uh, top earners to the lowest earners in those particular countries. It's a very simple measure, uh, but it tells you... Um, levels of income inequality um, across uh, across those countries and across time. Now, these countries here are high inequality, low welfare provision. As this goes up, as we say there's higher inequality in these countries. These countries um, include the UK, the United States, Australia, Ireland. It's prompted some people to say there is something about speaking English that contributes to obesity. Uh, it's not trivial, really, because because English is the language of globalization, and it's the 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 discourse about globalization and market liberalism is English. So, I'm it's not been done, but I feel reasonably certain that if you were to do a linguistic analysis of how people see themselves in society in uh, in, in, in English-speaking countries, it would be a little bit different to to, to the Nordic countries, for example. So. And, you know, it's a linguistic analysis that uh, could, can't yet be done, let's say, because the com- computational linguistics isn't quite there, there yet, but it's, it's, it's almost possible. So we're, we're talking with, with computer scientists and computational linguists, for example, to try and work on, work on texts, because there's an awful lot of text that can, we can work with. Uh, but these are low inequality, high welfare provision nations. So... Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland, those wonderful, wonderful nations, Scandinavian nations. Um, When we look at um, obesity rates and how much tax people pay, I gave a talk in Stockholm at Karolinska, and I said, who's happy paying their taxes? Most people put their hands up. It was was, was astonishing. Can I ask the question here? Who is happy paying their taxes? Yeah. Yeah. It's not bad, that's not bad, actually. It could be, yeah, 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 okay. It's an enlightened audience. <laughs> um, when we look at, you know, this chart shows in a very crude way the more tax a nation pays, the less obesity it has. These are some of the nations that fall into, into more market liberal formations. It's not a pretty or, 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 or pristine diagram, but we see at this top end. There is a, 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 a privilege of lower obesity among nations that pay more tax. Okay, very briefly, welfare regimes and obesity. Just give you a little bit about, about this particular politics. Espin Anderson last, uh, has uh, uh, written about the three well. words, three worlds of welfare regimes market liberal, conservative, and social democratic. Um, and um, this has been updated more recently into. Uh, two forms, liberal market economies and coordinated market economies. Liberal market economies are countries like this one say free markets are the way to solve <coughs> problems at the, at, the, at the national and political level. Co- coordinated market economies are, are the ones where they say, well, let's have more welfare provision. Or the conservative ones that say, well, let's preserve regionalism as in Italy, for example, uh, or, or, or in France. Um, since the 1970s, there's been the rise of market liberalism, um, and the timing more or less corresponds to the obesity uh, p- epidemic, if I can call it that. But to put it short, if you've missed all of that, under Thatcher and Reagan, obesity rates accelerated. Very crudely put, but um, it came to an hypothesis. i worked with an economist, um, Avner Offer, here in Oxford, and uh, we, we uh, put together a lot of data. Um, on about 2.5 million individuals uh, from 11 countries to look at um, uh, economic hypotheses of obesity increase. Supply shock. Decline of physical activity. increased cheaper pre-processed food. (coughs) Hangi acidizing food. One hypothesis. Obesity is a response to stress. Insecurity stress. Um, Market liberal societies are more competitive, less secure. So you're working, working, working. You're stressed out of a tree. You know you're not allowed to Binge on alcohol anymore, you're not allowed to smoke anymore. What do you go and do? Go and binge on food, um, as a very crude sort of formulation of that. Um, inequality stress, subordination is stress. That is, um, you might be well paid, but if you're low ranking within your particular organization, that is stressful because your boss, who's a lovely man, um, says, Let's, be a, let's make it a hypothetical boss. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to turn you into a bastard. You <laughs> don't, want to do, don't want to do that. Um, your hypothetical boss um, gets, gets, uh, gets a memo from the health department on a Friday night. He's got things planned on the Saturday. His wife says, we're going to dinner, we're going here, we're doing this, da-da-da-da-da. i am not, you know, she doesn't want to change her plans. He knows his life would be hell if he were to disobey his wife um, and change everything because he needs to work over the entire weekend. So he phones his subordinate. Uh, his subordinate says, yes, I'll get on to this. I'll have the briefing ready for Monday morning. What does he do? He sends an email to his next in charge who uh, who, who then says, uh, okay, well, he sends an email to the next person, and then there's a little person at the bottom who's carrying the whole system. Well, paid could be a public servant but is suddenly has his weekend destroyed because he now has to produce a briefing for monday morning so subordination is stressful it's been demonstrated um, in many species okay this is briefly what we did 96 studies taken between 1994 2004 2.6 million individuals 11 countries market liberal ones non-market liberal ones we used body mass index as so the measure of the cutoff, BMI more than 30. We won't get into the argument about whether that's the right thing to do or not, but you need a cutoff, that's what we used. And um, 46 market liberal studies, 49 uh, non market liberal studies. Um, and uh, what we found was the obesity rates in market liberal countries were on average 25.5%, 19% in non market liberal countries. So really, really this debate, this analysis, really, is about that 6% difference. It's not about explaining all of obesity. It's about that 6%, nothing more. But that 6%, I'm sure you would agree, is important. Okay, these are the variables. You don't need to see this. Um, Basically, economic security, economic equality are the two measures. Um, There's lots of different studies that were pulled together for this data. The Luxembourg Income Study, um, the uh, Osberg's Index of Economic uh, Well-Being was used. Big Mac index was obtained from The Economist, that is the re- used as the relative price of food across the planet. And economic security was obtained from the Luxembourg Income Study, gave us measures of security from unemployment, illness, single of poverty, poverty and old age, and so on. So a whole bunch of variables. I'll run quickly to the data. In terms of the Big Mac index, basically this shows, this is just the relative cost of a standard commodity across the planet. Um, simple. Uh, but it shows that food prices have been declining across the period that we've been uh, that we've been uh, 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 that we that we were measuring um, in the UK, um, <coughs> Germany, Italy. Food prices more or less followed. <coughs> Finland, um, for example, a big mac is expensive. Food is more expensive relative to income. In The US, Canada, Australia, uh, food is relatively ch- is cheap relative to income. Okay, so very briefly. Okay, let's just run through this. Basically, this shows in both liberal and non-liberal countries, market liberal countries, obesity has increased across time. When we look at um, these particular increases, we can see there is a so-called fast food shop. Basically, um, the more expensive food is, the uh, lower the obesity rates are in in these different countries. But what we also see is that economic security, uh, where there's more economic security, as in the welfare states, then there are lower lower levels then there are lower levels of, of obesity okay if we move to um, looking at um, uh, economic security versus versus economic uh, equality uh, we can see that um, economic uh, economic security um, is far bigger and it has much bigger effect than economic equality so the argument between equality and and security both of those uh, uh, are, are there, but we found that economic security is more important um, in this set of relationships. When we look at um, um, security and take market liberal out of the, out of the picture, then we still, find, uh, we, we, we still find an effect of, of security by uh, the International Labour Organization measure of security. One of the interesting things which I think is probably more salient to, to policy is that the, the relationships between uh, obesity and security are quite, uh, quite important. Um, that is, the higher the income security a nation has, the lower the obesity rates are. The higher the representation security, that is unionisation. That is, if you have an argument with your lovely boss, um, then you, you, you have um, a, a labour uh, uh, union to go to to, to, to help uh, represent uh, represent your position, then your uh, uh, then obesity rates are are lower. So it's not just straightforwardly about about uh, about income and equality. Uh, there are other things that, that that operate there as well. Okay. Um, dependency security. The interesting thing is that economic security operates even when you take the United States out of the picture. So you take the U.S. out because the U.S. is a huge outlier. We take that out. The effect is 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 is, is dampened but the effect is still clearly there. So it's, not, it's something that could very e- easily apply just to the European Union. You don't need to think about, well, it's a US effect. It is, it is a, a, much, a, a much broader phenomenon. With respect to dependency, that is, you know, are single parents supported? Is there unemployment benefit? Is, there, uh, are, are, is the pension system good? The most important thing that popped out of our data was medical expenditure. That is, welfare states that have good national health service provision have lower obesity rates. Perhaps surprising, but interesting. Interesting if you think, if you put this into the context of, say, the United States, where one of the biggest forms of insecurity is the fear of getting ill. of the small businesses in the United States, something like 40% of them go bankrupt because the person who owns that business has gotten seriously ill. So they have to sell the business, sell everything, because there are so many people without, without, without insurance. It makes the health care bill in the United States much more than about health. It is about society. And Obama knows that. His people know that, but it cannot be represented in that kind of way because the U.S. isn't ready for that kind of Scandinavian debate about about big society. The government here is trying to talk about big society in particular kinds of ways, but but uh, but you know it, it, it's a, it's a very it's I think it's a very important finding. Unemployment is also uh, benefit is also there, but less important. So cheap energy dense food is important to increasing obesity rates across nations. Less so than economic insecurity. Economic inequality is less important than economic insecurity. And of the economic insecurity, skills, representation, income security most important. Skill security means that if you have an education, the postdocs who put up their hands I'm assuming you're postdocs that put up your hands at the beginning you can put your hands up again. If you lose your job, you have enough education and enough transferable skills to be able to find a job somewhere else if your profession collapses. And we're in an age now where professions do collapse and you cannot expect to be in the same job across the whole of your life. I think about my own job, I seem to be, I am an academic um, and I'd call myself an intellectual, but I really think I've had four different jobs under the same title across the time that I've been doing my job. And I'm sure the same would go for many of the, the more senior colleagues. I've been lucky to be in the position where I've been able to, to reinvent my job. Um, but you know, those kinds of things are, are important. To be able to, to be represented, um, to be secure in income, and to be able to have skills. And health and security is the most important with respect to dependency and security. Okay, I'm gonna focus on the UK very, very quickly. Just a little bit of the data. These are the Thatcher years. This shows the Gini coefficient and how it's increased since the Thatcher years. Um, so it's increased by um, by more or less um, uh, more or less a third since it doesn't scale to zero, of course. Uh, but it, it shows this dramatic increase in inequality, income inequality in the UK since the Thatcher years. How to capture inequality and insecurity? Um, the present social classification that is used in this country um, uh, uses uh, occupation as a measure of of uh, of inequality, so there 's a classification that goes into there's uh, uh, seven major categories uh, there 's a full version which has seventy categories, but it all depends on on jobs now the u k has changed and uh, some of these traditional classifications like um, uh, um, uh, semi routine occupations intermediate occupations, and so on have all changed um, and uh, Mike Savage at the London School of Economics sociologist, has attempted to put together a new model of social class using the british Great British class Survey Experiment plus a national representative survey of about one hundred and sixty thousand people it 's based that that 's the previous one the new model tries to capture other forms of capital, so it tries to capture social capital and cultural capital as well as economic capital so so um, it 's come out with seven different classes it 's a kind of factor analysis they used in the end to come up with seven classes established middle class elite established middle class technical middle class new affluent workers that is the new class of people who um, you know are, are are technically oriented maybe maybe uh, uh, maybe uh, computer uh, 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 computer based um who suddenly have uh, uh, new kinds of new kinds of jobs traditional working class uh, emergent service workers. These are the people who sit in the call centres. These are the people who uh, who uh, who are doing the caring around the hospital, doing the cleaning and so on. Who may be, you know, may come from Poland, Bulgaria, you know, Romania, Zimbabwe, wherever, um, um, and you know, have uh, represent another class. But then at the bottom, uh, which has had a lot of media attention, the idea of a, a precariat, poor economic capital. Low social scores on everything. They're on zero-hours contracts. They can be dismissed at a moment. They can be re-employed at a moment, and so don't have security. So I've used this classification to just give you some idea. They're not clean categories. Bar staff, (laughs) chefs, care workers, custom services, um, and so on. Um, Assemblers and routine operatives. You know know you've got the mini-plant, the BMW mini-plant nearby. A lot of people are on zero-hours contracts so you know they can work for 2 weeks then have no work for another week and then be reemployed so they they have a contract but the contract is we will employ you when we have work for you it makes it a very flexible efficient workforce uh, for the company and also for the for the economy but for those particular people it means that they have to have several jobs rolling around at any particular time to be able to be to be constantly employed <laughs> okay um this just defines some of these categories, just to say they're not clean categories. Social contacts—that is, the number of people you could regularly call upon. Uh, social contact score, which is the people, of close friends, more distant friends, and acquaintances, including things like Facebook, for example. Um, highbrow and emerging cultural capital. Highbrow—that is, you love going to the opera. Um, lowbrow means you like everything else that I don't like because I don't have much. Emerging cultural capital. It also includes using computers and, and, and using, using uh, uh, being socially networked. So that relates to the other category. So uh, distribution of new cl- classes is not easily easily uh, north and south. So this is the elite. Some of them concentrated around London, but also somewhere in the north. Um, the technical middle class so the scientists in this room I'm sure at least one of you will identify with being in the technical middle class you have a skill, you have a particular technology that you can work with and you're bloody good at it and you get paid accordingly uh, to, to, to that um, the established middle class have put policemen here, but you know it can be a whole bunch of you know more traditional, uh, traditional middle class occupations. Uh, the traditional working class are all getting older. Um, it includes things like secretaries, new affluent workers, electricians, plumbers, and so on. Bar staff and uh, who, who are emergency service workers, cleaners, and <coughs> the precariat. As, as kind of caricatures. So, what I do uh, child obesity, 600,000 individuals, children from the National Child Measurement Program, mm-hmm. offered to me from, uh, by, by Harry Rutter, um, who's, who's based here in Oxford, and he's also part of our obesity, obesity unit. Um, horrible stuff about data, which you don't want us to read. Anyway, children aged four to five years, 2011 12, 565,000 children from state maintained schools. So, again, we don't get the kids from private schools. I did get an analysis from him from kids who were measured in some private schools and the numbers are a little bit different. They are different. Um, just, to, just to be able to. Um, social class data from those seven latent classes. Z-scores were given according to how many people in each local authority that, uh, that, that fitted into each of these social classes, with obesity rates for those different places. And uh, we ended up with 320 local authorities involved. So we just looked at mean obesity rates across Z-score categories. Uh, economic, um, social class categories based on insecurity, uh, emergent service workers and um, uh, those based on equality, elite, established middle class, technical middle class, new affluent workers, and traditional working class. And this is what we found. Just four more slides and I'm done. Um, basically what we might expect. In places that have an enrichment of people from, from the elite, obesity rates are lowest in places that have low rates of uh, 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 proportions of, of the elite and obesity rates are highest. We'd expect that. But, you know, it's quite complicated because sometimes there's a place that has a lot of the elite and also a lot of emergent service workers. And this is particularly the case in London, where people are living cheek by jowl. You know, people of high status and low status are living close together. And also in, this, in different places as they gentrify, the, 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 the proportions of classes change. I'm just showing you the significant results. Technical middle class, similar kind of thing. The more of the technical middle class, the scientists, the, the computer scientists, the people who are, you know, educated and know their skills and know their, you know, and work with a, with particular technologies. Um, again, where there's a lot of them, the obesity rates are much lower than in places where there's 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 only a few of them. Conversely, it isn't the working class who are becoming obese. Or have higher rates of obesity if there's more of them in a local authority. It is the emergent service workers where the greater proportion of emergent <coughs> service workers, the higher the levels of of, of, uh, of obesity. Similarly, with respect to the precariat, um, more of them um, than there are higher levels of obesity. Now, using an ordinary least squares regression of obesity rates by local authority uh, across these different categories shows that In local authorities, where there are more of the elite, there's less obesity. Where uh, where there are more emergent service workers, there is more obesity. Where there's a precariat, there is more obesity. So uh, the thing that we're trying to capture is that people carry their capital on their bodies. Um, They respond to everyday life in relation to the stresses and structures they're exposed to. Uh, the stresses and structures they're exposed to vary according to place and place varies according to changing uh, political economic circumstances so a an area can become deprived or an area can become gentrified all of those these things, things are interrelated and i think the attempt is to try and capture more of those relationships in a fine-grained way because none of these measures give any kind of, any kind of ideal picture. So I'm going to finish there. Um, just with and, Lars Espinay and Anderson, who called for a more child-centred social investment strategy. So life chances, including health, depend increasingly on the cultural, social and cognitive capital that citizens can amass. So if we're looking at child obesity in relation to inequality. Helping with inequality should help society. Thank you.